Welcome to Webinecki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinecki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. Today's show is from the University of New England's Donna M. Loring Annual Lecture Series. This year's 2022 title, One Nation Under Fraud, A Remonstrance. We are airing it with permission from the University of New England and its Women Writers Collection. This show will be the foundation for our new series beginning in January. A new series will unpack the 1942 transcripts of the Maine Legislative Research Committee of the 91st Legislature and the committee's strategic plan to eliminate the tribes. Today's show reveals just a small portion of those transcripts. Hi, everyone. I'm Jennifer Tuttle, director of the Maine Women Writers Collection. And on behalf of the collection and our curator, Sarah Baker, as well as on behalf of the University of New England, I welcome you to today's Donna M. Loring Lecture. Although we're on Zoom, we gather on Wabanaki land, home to the Mi'kmaq Nation, the Holton Band of Maliseet Indians, the Passamaquoddy Tribe, and the Penobscot Nation. In acknowledging this fact, we stand with the Permanent Commission on the Status of Racial, Indigenous, and Tribal Populations and the three co-authors of the report to be discussed today to tell the suppressed history of attempts to deny the tribes their ancestral land and waters, their sovereignty, and thus so many resources that they have needed to thrive. We hope that today's event will provide a space for conversation, illumination, and healing and as a settler institution on this land, providing such a space is the very least of our responsibility. We'd like to thank UNE's Office of Communications, especially Lee Cody, Dave Diego, and Milo Grammer for making this event happen. And we're grateful as always to our co-sponsor, the Center for Excellence in Collaborative Education for their support. Our three distinguished presenters will speak about the report they co-authored, one Nation Under Fraud, A Remonstrance, which was published by the Permanent Commission on the Status of Racial, Indigenous, and Tribal Populations in March of this year. We also have a special guest, Representative Rachel Talbot-Ross, who will say a few words to introduce the report and the Permanent Commission, of which she is co-chair. Representative Ross is a ninth-generation Mainer who has dedicated her career to public service and social justice. In addition to serving as the City of Portland's Director of Equal Opportunity and Multicultural Affairs for more than two decades, she led the NAACP in Maine, founded several nonprofit organizations, and chaired the Maine State Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. She's currently serving her third term in the Maine House, where she is Assistant House Majority Leader and is the first Black woman elected to the Maine Legislature and to legislative leadership. Beyond her role in establishing and co-leading the Permanent Commission, she has secured passage of landmark bills to include racial impact analysis in the legislative process and expand tribal legal authority over domestic violence against Native Americans. In recognition of her work, she is the recipient of multiple awards, including UNE's Deborah Morton Award for Exceptional Civic Leadership. As many of you know, 
The Honorable Donna M. Loring is a Penobscot Nation tribal elder and former council member. For 12 years, she represented the Penobscot Nation in the Maine State Legislature, during which, among many other accomplishments, she authored and sponsored LD 291, an act to require teaching Maine Native American history and culture in Maine schools, the implementation and enforcement of which is, as you all probably know, still a work in progress. Through this work, as well as her hosting of Wabanaki Windows on WERU, her longtime leadership of the nonprofit Seven Eagles Media Productions, her recent work as Senior Advisor on Tribal Affairs to Governor Janet Mills, and many other commitments, Donna Loring has devoted herself not only to public service, but to raising public awareness of and dismantling institutional discrimination against Wabanaki people. She holds two honorary doctorates and has received numerous awards, including a Deborah Morton Award from UNE and the Courage is Contagious Award from the Maine School of Law. In 2009, she entrusted UNE and the Maine Women Writers Collection with her personal, professional, and literary papers and worked with us to institute the annual Donna M. Loring Lecture, a profound gift that has become an extension of her other work. The Honorable Eric Maynard has served since 2008 as the Chief Judge of the Penobscot Nation Tribal Court, in which capacity he presides over the nation's criminal, civil, and wellness courts. He's a member of the Maine, Massachusetts, and Federal Court Bars, as well as being admitted to practice before the U.S. First Circuit Court of Appeals and the U.S. Supreme Court. He also serves as a contract judge for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, where he's a member of a team reviewing tribal courts to assist in meeting due process requirements of the Tribal Law and Order Act and special domestic violence criminal jurisdiction under the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act. Prior to his current appointment, Judge Maynard served as the Chief Enforcement of, sorry, Chief of Enforcement of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination and was a senior partner in Hawks and Maynard LLP. He's served on the Maine Advisory Group to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, the Board of Directors of the Maine Civil Liberties Union, and the Executive Board of the Portland Branch of the NAACP. Our third speaker, attorney Joseph Goose, is a UNE alumnus and honors program participant who graduated summa cum laude in 2012 with a degree in political science. He went on in 2015 to earn his Juris Doctor from the University of Maine School of Law, where he graduated cum laude. While at UNE, Mr. Goose wrote a political science senior thesis examining racial disparities in Maine's penal system. And this project was founded upon in-depth scholarly research he conducted in the Maine Women Writers Collection's Donna Loring papers. While in law school, he worked on the Maine Law Review and was awarded the Wernick Prize for legal writing and recognition of his outstanding legal scholarship. Since that time, he has served as a legislative researcher for the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission and remains active in the realm of academic legal research and writing concerning matters of tribal sovereignty in Maine. He also works as attorney for Berman and Simmons Trial Attorneys, a private civil litigation firm. We're truly honored to be sharing the Zoom screen with the four of you today, and we're very grateful for your work. A quick note to the audience, 
We will hold all questions for the end. If you're watching through Zoom, you can enter your questions into the chat and we will then pose them to the panel. And although we may not have time to get to everyone before we end promptly at one o'clock, we will include as many of them as we can. So I will now turn the spotlight over to Representative Rachel Talbot Ross. Well, good afternoon. It is truly an honor to join you today for the Donna M. Loring Lecture Series and for today's discussion on One Nation Under Fraud, a Remonstrance. I would like to start by thanking the University of New England and Jennifer Tuttle for hosting this discussion, this series, and for the authors uh, for their exceptional historical knowledge, their brilliant writing skills, and their unwavering courage to challenge the origin story of statehood and Maine's sense of exceptionalism. On behalf of the Permanent Commission on the Status of Racial, Indigenous, and Tribal Populations, I want to uh, just really iterate and confirm that we remain deeply moved by the opportunity to help educate Mainers on the historical truth of our nation's relationship and our state's participation in the relationship with Wabanaki Confederacy and the generational impact of this history on all Mainers. It is fair to say that we all want to live in communities that reflect honesty and the truth about who we are, the integrity and how we treat one another and the freedoms in which to pursue our dreams. An essential element of that vision is learning the truth of our history so that we can reckon with our mistakes and make a future more just for everyone. In fact, our collective freedom depends on telling the truth. But for far too long, for far too many in Maine, the history of land theft, genocide, and human rights violations that compromise much of our tribal state relations is totally unknown or obscured. The difficult but necessary work of bringing that history out into the light of day is the vital step on the path to justice. One Nation Under Fraud and Remonstrance reveals the awful truth that the state of Maine engaged in a decades-long calculated effort to separate the Wabanaki people from their ancestral land and erase them from existence. We are all fortunate that in spite of those efforts, in the face of impossible odds, our Wabanaki neighbors, to whom we are indebted to, are still here. The original 1833 remonstrance of the Penobscot Nation contained in the report was considered by the Maine House of Representatives during the 23rd legislature. At that time, a vote was taken on the question of printing 300 copies for the full consideration of the legislature, but the motion failed by one vote and the remonstrance was not printed. Last April, I'm proud to say, almost exactly 188 years later, the Permanent Commission printed exactly 300 copies of this remonstrance to distribute to the executive branch, judicial branch, all members of the 130th legislature, constitutional officers, and the governmental offices of the Wabanaki nations. In recognition of Indigenous Peoples Day, the Permanent Commission, in partnership with the Maine State Library, delivered additional copies to every public library in the state. It is a humbling honor to have developed and helped lift the voice of those ancestors of the Penobscot people after so long. The entire state of Maine should be forever, forever grateful, forever grateful 
to the Honorable Donna Loring, Honorable Eric Mainhart, and Joseph Gus. They have strengthened our belief in the sovereignty of the Wabanaki, the people of the Dawn, the first peoples of this territory who have lived in and cared for this land since time immemorial. I really uh, just want to say to all who are listening, uh, to our authors, to the University of New England, uh, what a true honor it's been uh, to be here with you today. And I hope uh, that this is not uh, a discussion uh, that is, uh, remains just to today, that this is a living, breathing document, that this, this stays with us, that we continue the fight. Uh, and you should know that the Permanent Commission uh, will be here each and every day for it. So thank you very much. So <clears throat> I believe Donna, if you'd like to start us off. Sure. Um, I think Rachel provided a great intro to the, to the remonstrance uh, itself. So I'm not gonna go into uh, explaining that piece. It's, you know, the, the document that we've researched is extensive. And uh, we, uh, we went back and forth about how we were gonna present it. And uh, at the last minute, we decided that the most important piece to all of this research are the uh, tr uh, transcriptions that we uncovered, uh, referenced the 1942 uh, legislature set dur uh, during that session. And uh, 1942, there was uh, a world war, World War II going on. And the state of Maine decided that it needed to cut down on a lot of expenses because of the war effort. And amongst the expenses that they wanted to cut down on or get rid of uh, happened to be the, uh, the monies that they were given uh, uh, to, the, to the tribal nations. And they wanted to find out uh, why they owed the tribal nations this money uh, and uh, how they could cut down on the amount of money that was given to the tribes. So they talked about a lot of, a few things. And uh, one of in, in the, uh, the lead person that they, they created a, a, a research committee, legislative research committee, and they brought in uh, the chair of the committee, uh, a chair, uh, Douglas, uh, Joe, can you? Move on. Yes. Slides, thank you. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm kind of got lost here. Uh, and they brought on a, a chair to, uh, to conduct the research. And I'll go into that further. I think I went ahead of myself. <laughs> uh, so I want to back up and I want to hand this intro over to uh, Judge Eric Manor. Good afternoon. Um, I'd like to Thank UNE for, for inviting me to be part of this panel. Well, thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. And I really need to express my appreciation to Donna and Joe they are, for including me uh, in this piece. They are two of the finest researchers and authors I have ever met. And they did exceptional work. Um, we start with a, a quick overview of federal Indian law. And the federal Indian law finds its genesis back in actually the, the U.S. Constitution 
um, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3, which says that Congress has the sole power uh, to uh, enter into commerce or uh, treaties with the tribe. From that, the Congress then adopted what was called the Non-Intercourse Act. And that Non-Intercourse Act, has, as you see, established the framework of government and interactions with the indigenous tribes in the United States. Specifically, it limited the power of states to enter into uh, agreements or treaties uh, with the tribes unless it was sanctioned by the US Congress. So the next time. So Maine uh, at this point in time, uh, and it's been our position uh, that is a, it's a pariah outside of federal law because Maine has since its inception, attempted to deal directly with the tribes and did deal directly with the tribes from 1820 onward, um, even through Mixa. The, the real, and you can see the, the timeline was that in 1790, Congress passed the Non-Intercourse Act. In 1818, Massachusetts entered into a treaty with the Penobscot tribe uh, in 1820, Maine became a state. As part of uh, Maine becoming a state, it had to agree to certain things with Massachusetts. And then post actually becoming a state, Maine entered into a treaty with the Penobscot tribe. Um, that's caused some concern as to how could the state enter into a treaty with the tribe when in fact it wasn't a state at the time. Um, and what hadn't the actions had not been ratified by the uh, Congress. In any event, the um, in September, Governor King commissioned the Maine Territory, um, and that is why we've gotten to the point of saying that uh, Maine's actions exist outside of federal Indian law. Federal Indian law was established um, not only by the U.S. Constitution and and the Non-Intercourse Act, but in uh, a series of cases called the Marshall Trilogy, most important being Worcester versus Georgia, which essentially said the states have no role on tribal land that solely belongs to the federal government. And I'll turn it back to you, um, Donna. Hey, thanks. So in throughout this research, uh, I've come up with a, uh, what I call an, an acronym, it's, it's ICE and it's the meaning is isolation, control and eliminate, which is what the state set out to do. Isolation, when they separated the tribes from the other uh, tribal communities across the country, and they put us uh, in specific areas to, to stay and, and, and uh, not, not to move, kept us in these communities. Um, and also, uh, you know, just kept us barricaded in there so that we couldn't, uh, uh, couldn't, uh, directly communicate with, uh, with the federal government and the control, uh, they maintain political control through legislative policies, um, and laws, and also through planning in the state legislature, as you'll see as we move on. Elimination, uh, they 
plan to eliminate the tribes totally and to have the tribes uh, integrate with the communities uh, around, around us. Um, so we'll start this off in, in 1942. Again, like I started to explain earlier, with the Legislative Research Committee um, uh, looking into how much money the state uh, owed the tribe, why the state was paying the tribe, the history of, they wanted to know everything they could possibly find out. The, uh, there was a, an act before this committee that they sort of took in and, uh, and used it to sort of guide them. And, and it was uh, an act uh, relating to loss of membership in Indian tribes by marriage. So they brought that in because uh, they, they spoke about how that would uh, be a tool for them to eliminate membership. Uh, and uh, the research committee chaired by, uh, by, uh, by Webb, uh, they, uh, they brought in uh, Norman McDonald, who was the uh, director of the um, social welfare. Yeah, social welfare. I keep forgetting that. And, and, the, and under social welfare, the tribes were under social welfare. And uh, so he was sort of like in charge of whatever the tribes did, you know, you know under state law or whatever. And uh, the other legislative uh, uh, testimony we got during this was uh, uh, Frank Cowan, who was the attorney general. So the legislative committee sort of wanted a big picture of, of uh, Mac what McDonald thought and also the legal aspects uh, from Frank Cowan. Next slide. If I could weigh in for just a minute, I mean, the, the sure. challenge with uh, the fundamental premise that the state legislature could somehow limit uh, tribal membership by marriage is an affront to any theory of uh, sovereignty, as well as, as to what was occurring under federal Indian law. Only the tribes can determine membership. There is no possible way that the legislature should be weighing in on who can and cannot be a member of uh, a First Nation. Thank you for that. Um, I think we're gonna, we're gonna get into the transcripts, uh, the McDonald transcript and his testimony before this uh, research committee. Right. So, so yeah. just a quick word on this, um, folks, you'll, you'll see a lot of photographs and actual transcript excerpts on the next few slides. We've organized them uh, based on the different types of categories of activity that the legislature was discussing. Um, the testimony of Mr. McDonald will be read by uh, Judge Maynard, and then I will be reading the testimony of Representative Payson, and then uh, Donna Loring will be reading the remaining individual's uh, testimony. We've done this purposely to try to break it up so that you hear three different voices and it sounds more like the conversation that actually occurred that day. So I'm going to um, run through these and uh, you'll get a chance to hear what was said in 1942. So the first one being yours, Eric. Yeah. And I think the real importance of, of reading the testimony at this point in time is to understand um, exactly what, and it's the best evidence of what the state was thinking at the time in 1942 as it pursued this policy of isolation, control, and elimination. So 
part of Mr. McDonald's testimony, and again, remember, the, he was the director of social welfare in the state of Maine, um, is in the, this discussion, he starts with, I think it brings up the whole big problem of what we want to do to limit the membership in tribes of Indians. At the present time, so far as I can see, they may be a member of the tribe and have very little Indian blood in them because the law says membership may be acquired by birth and adoption into the tribe. That is limited. They cannot adopt anyone who has not at least one quarter Indian blood, and the third is by marriage to a male member of said tribe, provided they have any Indian blood in them themselves. Seems to me that we might want to limit that third part. A woman could not become a member of a tribe by marriage unless she had one quarter of Indian blood. So Chairman Dow says, the situation has developed over a period of years and we have been partly responsible for it in this particular situation. And I do not think we can be too brutal in rectifying our mistakes at somebody else's expense. Representative Payson, it would not be profitable even if we could. If you shove these people out, as Mr. Cummings, the Indian agent has said, probably it would cost you more to put them somewhere else because you would not have centralized control. Mr. McDonald, I do not think you can solve it in that way. I think the way to do it would be by making the reservation part of the adjoining town and dividing it up amongst the Indians. You've got to persuade them out. The towns would be awful mad to have to take that territory over, wouldn't they? Mr. Boucher, I know if I lived in Old Town, I wouldn't want them to, to be part of Old Town. Mr. McDonald, I think if we could only get some law to prohibit white men living on the reservation, if they married a squaw, they would have to leave, they've got to leave there. Mr. Boucher, if a white man has a squaw, get them off the reservation and keep them off the rest of their life and the children can't go back. Representative Payson, if you restrict their marriage laws, you can force them out a lot of ways. You can force them out by their own choice. Mr. McDonald, I would feel that was one of the basic problems. There are two problems here. We can plan on a long-term program, which might result in the disintegration of the Indian tribes as such, their absorption in this part of the state. And we have perhaps an immediate problem to try and prevent these tribes from getting any larger than they are getting through intermarriage with white people. We might take immediate steps to try and control that in some way and yet work on this larger problem. Of course, time may eventually help this problem because it will, it will result in there being no Indians as such in Maine. But unless you're going to make a long range plan, you're still going to have a reservation of white men called Indians. And they go off the record into executive session and they come back. Mr. Weber, wouldn't we be doing the Indians themselves a kindness if we destroyed the reservation system and spread them offered opportunities for education for those who could take it in uh, such degree as they could and attempt in a long range program to rehabilitate them and uh, diversified places in business and so forth? Mr. McDonald, yes, I think we would be doing them a favor. 
On the other hand, I can see many difficulties in trying to accomplish that. I do not think that you can arbitrarily uproot them from the reservation and place them throughout the state of Maine and then have them satisfied or happy. And I would positive you would find all kinds of opposition to it. Chairman Dow, not only from the Indians. Mr. McDonald, oh heavens, no. Mr. McDonald, that is what we've got to do, I think. Any long range plan has to be based on the present young generation, on the children. We cannot even change our old people in the white race. Some of them will stick in the most God awful places. Mr. Libby, you could start with an educational plan in your schools and on the reservations and see to it that the Indian children who were growing up were taught to believe they should go out and assume their proper place in the state. Mr. McDonald, I shouldn't be surprised if we got the support of the Catholic Church in doing it. Mr. Payson, what would your long-term plan envision? Mr. McDonald, I think you would have to set up some plan whereby children born after a certain date, for instance, would not become members of the tribe. And as people who now own property died off, their property would revert to the state. And we might make some provision for these Indian reservations to be included in adjacent towns and to become part of the adjacent towns. Or else we might divide up the reservations, make them part of adjacent towns and give to each Indian a certain piece of property, give his title to it and give them the rights of citizenship. Let them vote and do everything every, anybody else does. Then he would have the rights to sell the property to whoever he pleased Probably that would be the easiest way to ever get the tribe broken up because in many instances they would sell and white people would own the reservation and that would scatter the tribe. Whether that is fair or reasonable, I don't know. Mr. Pelletier, in years to come, being spread over a wide area, they would finally become assimilated. Mr. McDonald, I agree with you. I think the Indians would be better off in the end if they could become citizens and become absorbed, the same as we have absorbed several other races that have come over here. I think they would be much better off as individuals. And now the committee moves into discussion of policies of segregation, which further the ICE regime. Mr. Payson, Mr. McDonald, may I go deeper than this, talking in words of four syllables, taking it as a sociological proposition, how about segregating these people and keeping them intact as a separate people? Is that the policy of the state? Mr. McDonald, no, I think it is physically impossible to do it that way because under the federal laws, those people are citizens of the United States. They're American citizens if they're born in this state. And while our constitution does not seem to permit them to vote, so far as I can see, there's nothing to prevent them from voting under the federal law because there is a federal law that says any, any Indian is a citizen of the United States. Chairman Dow, are there religious differences? F. Cummings, F, sorry, Flag Cummings, the Indian agent says, some religious differences. Mr. Weber, is your religion's problem with the Penobscot? Mr. Cummings, yes. Mr. McDonald. That is right, we do pay the tuition for the children to attend the Old Town public schools. 
That is, we pay tuition for all Protestant children that want to attend grade schools in Old Town. So they do not have to go to the parochial school. On the other hand, they have to cross the river and go to the Old Town schools. Chairman Dow, that makes a little friction. Mr. McDonald, that is right. Mr. Weber, is crossing that river a perfectly safe proposition for these children? Mr. McDonald, I think so. There's a large boat and ferry that takes the children across. Mr. Weber, at all seasons of the year? Mr. McDonald, except when the river is frozen and then they walk over the ice. The dangerous part, perhaps, is a few days in the spring and the fall when the river is thawing or freezing. Mr. Payson, I can't appraise the current situation intelligently. It may be a lack of intellectual development, but I find in government more and more, if I can get all kinds of facts, relevant facts, of what has happened, and have somebody who is capable to interpret those facts, I can get a lot farther on a future proposition than I can by going ahead by main strength and saying, this is what we need to do. Because this problem, it seems to me, is a real problem. It's a miniature slave problem. You gave the slaves in the South emancipation, made them all free men, but you didn't solve anything so far as the economic problem was concerned. We have got a miniature slave problem here. And it seems to me we need to be careful in working it out, not by the legislature, but by people who know how to work people out of a bad proposition as a social proposition. And now as the committee moved into discussing policies that would obfuscate or uh, make hard to understand or, or contextualize what they were trying to do. Mr. Payson, there might be one other thing come in there as a little face-saving proposition. If we can get enough facts from any source to destroy the myth, the Indians own the state, and we are paying them interest on that ownership, if we can get rid of that whole phase by reporting this whole thing as a deal between the Indians and the state of Maine, and they have been doing pretty well, Maybe the facts will develop that. We might be able to lay a little background for a long range plan that wouldn't have so much maudlin sympathy. When they have come in for Indian pay in the legislature, I have always voted against it. And now testimony at the, um, the appearance of Frank Cowan. Mr. Payson, in regards to a project that um, Attorney General Cowan had conducted for research asks, did you make your study for material available? Did you make your study from material available in the state library or did you have any outside material? Mr. Cowan, right here in the state house and down in the land office. My study, as you call it, I was digging into things down there and I kept running into this stuff. And I was checking up on the Indian Trust Fund, trying to find the origin of it and find out why it was a certain amount, of course. And as I went back and back through the land office records, I began to get more and more dubious. I finally said, the Indian trust fund amounts to 138,000 period and stopped right there. Mr. Payson, this is a skeleton in our closet. Mr. Cowan, well, I had a feeling it would be uh, more than we wanted to see in that closet. So I closed the door. So that concludes the transcript portions that um, we've prepared to share with you today. Uh, Donna and or Eric, would you like to preface uh, what we'll cover in this slide, which is the findings of Ralph Proctor 
and then the subsequent legislative recommendations, or should we just dive right in? Dive well, right in. Oh, Joe. Dive right in. What the heck, right? Okay. Um, so uh, I'll start with the, the first column, Eric, and then turn it over to you for the fiduciary duty. Um, in his research, uh, Ralph Proctor, who, Donna, it was a few weeks, right? Donna and Eric, I think he spent a few weeks on this research. Five project. weeks. Five, five weeks on, yeah. What has, when you read the full transcript, you'll see that it was discussed that it would be a, presumably a month long endeavor. Um, it took Ralph Proctor five weeks to reach his conclusions. Um, he noted, uh, you know, some Significant abruptions of pre uh, treaties, so you know contraventions of treaties, or you know instances where the state wasn't respecting treaties, uh, and we've listed the three main ones that he discusses here. The first occurring in October of 1835, when Maine sold uh, tribal islands in the Penobscot River for you can see the current day value is almost a quarter of a million dollars, um, when in fact the state did not have title to sell those lands; they were by treaty uh, belonging to the tribes. In 1794, Massachusetts, and by uh, any assumed obligations, Maine thereafter, had reserved 15 islands in the St. Croix River to the Passamaquoddy tribe. And at the time that those um, were reserved, they belonged to a non-native landowner. So again, the state, without having title to these lands, coming in and trying to apportion them when, in fact, uh, they did not have the authority or the legal ability to do so. And then uh, again in 1835, when the state sold islands belonging to the Passamaquoddy tribe per a treaty and subsequently failed to indemnify the tribe in a trespass action that the tribe lost. And what that means is um, the state had um, apportioned to the Passamaquoddy tribe islands in the river and said, you know, these are yours by treaty, and then had subsequently sold those lands to a non native landowner. When that person, the non-native landowner filed an action for trespass against the tribes. Um, that landowner succeeded in that lawsuit, meaning the tribe lost, and the tribe was forced to pay attorney's costs uh, in that lawsuit. So one of the things that the state did under the, the agreement with Massachusetts is to assume, assume certain treaty obligations, and, and that created a fiduciary duty. Under federal law, actually the federal government when it enters into a treaty as part of uh, an outgrowth of, of the Marshall Trilogy has a fiduciary duty that is owed to uh, the tribes. The state of Maine assumed those as part of a, an agreement that it made when it, it uh, sought and received statehood. The, the uh, Proctor Report found that there were certain things that were a fiduciary duty that the state had breached. Uh, the first one is that it impounded the Passamaquoddy trust accounts, money that was to be set aside for the use of the Passamaquoddy tribe. It misallocated those trust funds to the state general fund. It also um, took $10,000 of that money and invested it in bonds in Eastport. And then when Eastport defaulted on paying the bonds, said, oh, well, that's a problem. Um, you're not going to recover that. They also impounded the Penobscot trust accounts and never gave an accurate accounting of either the Vasmaquoddy uh, or Penobscot accounts. Exactly. And keep in mind that the figures that um, Eric and I are talking about on this slide, you know, unless it's otherwise noted, these are 1942 and earlier figures. So $10,000 in defaulted bonds 
to the city of Eastport um, in 1942 or earlier would be a much different sum than it is today. I don't have the calculation offhand, but we could get that if anyone needed it. Um, so these are the conclusions that Ralph Proctor draws in his research. He goes back to the legislat legislative research committee, which has heard from McDonald, which has heard from Cowan and says, here's what I found. Here are the, you know, we've listed, you know, about seven examples here. Um, and he presented those seven among others to the committee and said, here are the wrongs that I've identified, how we've wronged the tribe, breaching the fiduciary duty, the treaties. Um, and then they made recommendations based on his report. And Eric, do you wanna just take one each and, and read through? Um, so the first, you know, he, the legislative research committee said that uh, no lands which had been involved in those treaty abruptions, none of the land that belonged to the tribe but was illegally sold or had been given to the tribe, but you know the, the state didn't have the right to do that. None of that land reverted to the tribes. The second one was any sums owed to the tribes would be paid without interest. And that was important for the reason that Joe mentioned. There is um, significant dollars that were owed from early on in the 1800s that would have accumulated significant interest by 1942, um, significantly more than the original uh, amount owed. And the interesting footnote to the point that Eric just discussed is that the, the state um, in making its recommendations talks about how you know Maine had already done enough pursuant to the initial treaties by Massachusetts and the state of Maine, which historically, you know, there are plenty of historical scholars who can tell you better than uh, we can, but uh, we're not certainly not uh, involving large sums or anything of great value for the tribes uh, the, in, in receipt for what they gave up. Uh, the third is that uh, the Legislative Research Committee recommended that the legislature legally define an Indian as having at least one quarter blood. Um, the next was to, and then they probably go together, they were to implement a native youth vocational program and then to encourage agrarian labor. That was an attempt to break the tribes um, and the traditional tribal bonds to try and assimilate tribal um members that's right and then <clears throat> the last recommendation uh, was that the state should modify its welfare program so that with regard to tribal members the only recipients of state welfare would be those physically unable to work so again it would be like a requirement of complete physical disability so i just want to jump in here go back to that slide uh joe where it says uh, legally define an Indian as having at least one quarter blood, that has had some really bad ramifications on uh, tribal uh, membership, and they and they did this on purpose because you know eventually uh, you know if Indians married outside the tribe or a non-Indian or whatever, that blood quantum would go down, and the, the membership uh, would be lower, so you'd lose tribal members with that definition. And that was done on purpose. And I remember in my family, and I know there are other, lots of other families that uh, had, the, had the, uh, this law that ended up in, in the books, that uh, as soon as a, as a non-native, less than a quarter blood tribal person, less than a quarter blood turned 18, they would have to leave the tribal community. So I, I've had cousins, first cousins, that were brought up on Indian Island having to leave their homes because of this law. It's had generational uh, impacts. 
Donna, do you want to um, finish us off with these no, two slides? No, I think uh, we can't. <laughs> We're like, we've, we've gone over. Uh, like I understand. I'll stop sharing now. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we can go to Q&A now, um, Jennifer. Thank you all so much. I am just, I, I, I'm still processing everything that you've shared. It's incredibly powerful and outrageous. And um I know that you had more that you wanted to share and you're being very um, generous and also wanting to make sure to hear from the audience. So I really would like to encourage folks to take the next, you know, we have 15 minutes. So I would like to ask you to, to enter questions in the chat if uh, there's something that you would like to hear the speakers address. Um, I'll start with the first one, which has to do precisely with the Indian Land Claim Settlement Act and the other, um, if you could speak for a moment to the other sort of contemporary um, implications of all of this history and the suppressed um, story. Uh, Donna, you just mentioned the, the generational impacts, um, but I wondered if the speakers could start there perhaps. Donna, you wanna start or you want me to jump in? Go ahead, Eric. So when you talk about what ended up happening is that the state continued to pursue that um, policy of trying to make the tribes municipalities within the state. And in doing so, it intentionally denigrated the tribe sovereignty. If you look back at the constitution, it puts tribes on the same level as foreign nations and in, in several states. Each one of them and the tribes as well, sovereignty is supposed to be recognized by pushing it down and saying, we're going to make them uh, municipalities, which became actually the language used in the Settlement Act. They significantly limited tribal sovereignty. What that meant subsequently was when fe certain federal laws were passed, like the Tribal Law and Order Act and the uh, reauthorization reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, that the tribes did not have access to those laws as far as being able to exercise jurisdiction under them. But it also meant the tribes didn't have access to the federal financing that came along with exercising jurisdiction under those laws. So it really significantly uh, limited tribal sovereignty. It was only through the work Donna did and others in the state legislature to get that passed. Um, that was a bill actually put in by Rachel and Rena Newell, uh, Rachel Talbot Ross and Rena Newell, that in 2019 led to the state legislature passing VAWA and finally being signed by the governor. As of 2022, the reauthorization of VAWA that came by in 2022, um, the feds, the federal government specifically recognized the tribe's rights under the reauthorization of VAWA to exercise that jurisdiction without state management. And I do want to add that the Settlement Act, as far as municipalities go, where they ended up treating the tribes as municipalities, that was a state dream come true, that Settlement Act. Because as you remember in the transcript, they wanted to disperse the tribes into the next door and the next uh, uh, towns and whatever and, and assimilate them. So uh, this is the next best thing is they just turn the uh, tribal communities into a municipality. There are several more questions. So the first one uh, was, uh, 
Donna, uh, what year exactly was it that your first cousin was impacted by that law? Can you what year? Out? Yeah, some, that's what someone's asking. When? I don't know. When my cousin turned eight, 18, I was like, this was like, goodness, this was like, you know, I'm going to say 50 years ago. I mean, this was a long time ago. And this is today, this law is, is uh, they still don't recognize uh, tribal members that are less than, and I say tribal people, and I call them tribal people, even though they don't quarter blood, uh, as long as, as far as I'm concerned, as long as they have uh, one drop of Penobscot blood in them, they're Penobscot. That's my view. I'm gonna read another question. Uh, could you please comment on the 1626 legislation that Governor Mills refused to sign despite support from Democratic majorities in both houses. What happens next? Whoa, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> well, in my view, the land claims uh, is, uh, it's sort of, uh, in criminal law, they, they call it uh, fruit of the poisonous tree. But to, for comparison, it's like the land claims were, was taken from a poisonous well. I mean, every part of that land claims, uh, when, you, when you look at, when you look at the, the treaties between the, the, the states and, and the tribes, uh, there was no uh, honesty there. They, that was not done in good faith. It was done totally to take land. Uh, and, and that's, what they, that's what they did. And when you go back and you look at the, uh, uh, when Maine became a state in 1820, uh, that Penobscot Treaty was not signed until after Maine became a state, like five months after Maine became a state. So you say, well, okay, and, and you wonder, well, maybe, maybe they didn't, well, they weren't aware of that 1790 Act. Well, they were definitely aware of it, but they went ahead and did a treaty anyway. And then they just called it that they were the wards of, took over the wardship. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this uh, Settlement Act is just a piece of that. And uh, I, I don't think that should be, I think that should be abrogated. I think it should just be gotten rid of and that the uh, tribes and the state start out on an honest, equal relationship. And one of the things and one of the things that we recommend in the coda of this document is that the state create a, a, a constitutional officer that deals with the tribes to make that official. Uh, because when the land claim settlement was signed, the first thing that happened was the state of Maine dissolved the Department of Indian Affairs. So, and our relationship, the tribe's relationship with the state, every single election year depends on who gets elected, who gets elected to the legislature, who gets elected as governor, who gets elected as attorney general. That should not have to happen. And if I can just weigh in for a quick moment, one, I think the challenges of the Settlement Act is it is uh, a betwixt and between. It is 
uh, a matter that the state um, got certain things from the tribes, got the, the release of land, the land claims, which was paid for by the federal government. Um, the state of Maine didn't pay for that. That was paid for by the federal government, which bought lands that had been cut by the timber companies and were then sold back to the tribes. But more problematically is the issue that Donna has raised. Under federal Indian law, the U.S. government has a fiduciary relationship to the tribes. So there are certain services that the federal government has to either fund directly through a 638 contract or has to provide to the tribes. That is done through the Bureau of Indian Affairs, fiduciary duty that the federal government has. The state of Maine entered into a treaty with the tribes, but there is no uh, portion of the government that is set aside to enter into and to uh, meet the fiduciary duties. If the state of Maine wants to take the plate of the federal government, then it has to step in and accept the fiduciary duties of the federal government, and it has not done so. So either a constitutional officer that says, okay, we're going to accept those fiduciary duties and this is our responsibility and we'll uh, work with the tribes, or go back to the federal government and say, the state of Maine, we're going to do away with MIXA, um, and we'll go and uh, the tribes in Maine will be treated um, as other tribes are with regards to the federal government. It's really helpful. Um, there are a ton of questions. So uh, just to make sure we have time uh, for this one, and I will just add, you know, one of the comments is simply a, this was an extraordinary presentation and enormous service to all of us. And uh, they hope that we could hear more from all of you. Be happy so, to give you more. <laughs> yeah. So thank you. Um, so one of the questions is, and, and it goes to uh, Donna, your your mention of the coda, where you offer recommendations, including the constitutional officer. Uh, but the question is, you know, so where do we go from here? What what are your other recommendations uh, for how we move forward? Um, based on where we are now. Yeah, I think another recommendation in the, in the CODA has to do with the, the state of Maine um, creating an accord, bicentennial accord, to work with the tribes and create a, an agreement uh, a lot like they did in Washington State. Um, the, and that works, it works very well for them. And uh, in Washington state, they have uh, representatives from various departments that are designated to deal with uh, tribal specific issues. And Maine has, hasn't done that yet. And I'm, I've done, I, I think there were three. Yeah, Donna, the other was the publication of the original treaty terms, which had been removed yeah, in the 1840s. I, yeah. I, since I've written that, I've, I've thought more about it, and uh, we don't need to go back to those treaties. But might I just confirm to folks, so it is indeed the case, is it not that your, um, the report on which this presentation today is based, that this will be, um, it has been published by the Permanent Commission, but that it will also be published in the Maine Law Review? Yes, 75.2 issue of the main law review. Uh, and they, they'll have a seminar on it, the law school will. Yeah. Is that going to be um, 
a public event or a, an, an educational event or? Yes, I think it's being uh, prepared as like a public symposium. There'll be multiple different authors, um, indigenous and non-native scholars that are contributing to the issue. And it will be focused on um, issues of tribal sovereignty, tribal government, uh, intersection with federal and state Indian law. Thank you. I have uh, two related questions then. One being, uh, where should what should folks watch to be able to be sure not to miss that? And the other question is, can someone um, just share with the group here uh, where they would find a copy of the current report? Yeah, it, I believe the document um, is publicly accessible. If you type in, you know, One Nation Under Fraud or a Remonstrance, um, obviously it'll come up. But if you also go either to the UNE landing page for this event or to the Permanent Commission website, it's hosted on a Google Drive as a PDF. So you'll be able to read it there. And I can, um, any of the speakers, we can send a PDF to the, the folks that have organized this event um, if that's if there's interest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I am, if you just, anyone wants to email me, I'm jtuttle at une.edu and I'll I'll make sure that you get what you need uh, in case any of those suggestions don't work out. Uh, so can someone just clarify for the, um, the event next year, Joe? Um, yeah, it's a good question. Um, so the Maine Law Review has its own website. Um, information will be available there. If you live in the uh, area of the law school, the new law school <laughs> and USM, um, they should, there should be flyers and things like that. Probably most people will be able to have access to the scheduling of events through emails from the school or on the USM website and main law website. So I would say um, if you're interested, you can reach out uh, to anyone, any of the speakers here, to the people that organize this event. We can make sure that you know, you know when that's coming. And we can also communicate to the law review that there's a body of folks uh, outside of the main law community who are really interested in this and would like to in some way have information shared about when that will take place. Thank you for joining us today and please tune in next month for the first show on, on unpacking the 1942 Indian transcripts. I want to thank the University of New England for permission to air the audio portion of the 2022 Donna M. Loring Lecture Series. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles, from his CD Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs> <laughs>